The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Clive, Iowa is a suburb of the state's capital and biggest city, Des Moines. Clive is home to about 18,000 people. It's also the home of the headquarters of the Iowa Lottery. In 2011, the Iowa Lottery headquarters was a squat red brick office building across the street from the governor's mansion at Terrence Hill. One morning in early November, Mary Neubauer was settling into her office at the Iowa Lottery when her two staffers appeared in the doorway, Cassie and Michael. Hey Mary, Cassie said. Someone's just claimed the winning hot lotto ticket. Mary was the Iowa Lottery's Vice President of External Relations. Essentially, she was its spokeswoman. Her duties included promoting the lottery, arranging press conferences to announce the winners, and educating the public about the dangers of gambling. A former reporter for the Associated Press, she took to her job naturally. Hot Lotto was one of the Iowa Lottery's most popular games. You pick five numbers between 1 and 39 and a sixth number known as the Hot Ball between 1 and 19. Guess the first five right and you'll likely win tens of thousands of dollars. But guess all five plus the Hot Ball and you could be a millionaire. Someone in Waterloo, Iowa had recently won the draw, nailing the first five numbers, but missing the hot ball. Mary assumed this is what Cassie was referring to. Which hot lotto? The one from Waterloo? No, the other hot lotto. This could only mean one thing. About a year earlier, the Iowa Lottery held a hot lotto drawing with a grand prize worth $16.5 million, yet no one had come forward to claim it. Iowa lottery policy stipulated that winners have one year to claim their prize. The deadline was just weeks away. Mary was thrilled. Like most lottery employees, she loved giving away prizes, especially the life-changing amount. But a prize as big as this required the highest security standards. Mary got up from her desk and led Cassie and Michael into the security director's office, where the phone call could be recorded. The security director's name was Steve Bogle. He was a former cop and did things by the book. Mary explained the situation. Bogle dialed the number for the mystery winner. They got a voicemail message. That night, the winner called back. Hello, I think I'm the hot lotto jackpot winner. Congratulations, I'm Mary Neubauer, VP of External Relations, and I'm here with Steve Bogle, our security director. Who am I speaking with? My name's Philip Johnston. Where are you located? I'm calling you from my home in Quebec, Canada, but I do my work in Turks and Caicos. I'm an attorney, you see. Not all of my clients are drug dealers. <laughs> Johnston chuckled, but Neubauer didn't. Drug dealer comment aside, you didn't have to be from Iowa to win the lottery. But you did have to buy a ticket in Iowa. Johnston seemed to anticipate this. Not to worry, I bought the ticket in Des Moines. I see. And what brought you to Des Moines when you bought that ticket? It was business, actually. Listen, do I have to come back to Iowa to collect my prize in person? Or can't I just mail you the ticket? Iowa lottery policy says you have to collect it in person, but I'll confirm that. In the meantime, why don't you give me the ID number for your ticket? A simple test. Plenty of people call the lottery claiming a prize that isn't theirs. But Johnston rattled off the correct number. He had the ticket, or at least access to it. 
But something didn't sit right with Neubauer. Her reporter's instincts told her that Johnston wasn't telling the truth. That night, Mary checked the surveillance footage from the convenience store where the winning ticket was purchased 11 months earlier. She saw the man who bought the ticket. He was heavyset, stubbled, and wearing a ball cap pulled low over his eyes, and a hoodie with a hood pulled up. Most importantly, the surveillance footage included audio. She listened to the man purchase his tickets along with two hot dogs. He didn't sound anything like Johnston. If anything, he sounded Southern, not Canadian. So the next day, Neubauer and Bogle called Johnston back. Neubauer asked what seemed like an innocent question. Do you happen to remember what you wore on the day you bought the ticket? It was what I usually wear, sport coat, collared shirt, and gray flannel pants. Just like that, Neubauer caught Johnston in a lie. And lying about winning the lottery constitutes fraud. That doesn't match the individual in our surveillance video, she said trying to sound casual. Ah, well, I have to confess, I didn't buy the ticket myself. That was a fib. But I represent a person who did win, and they wish to remain anonymous. Now, Neubauer knew something was definitely wrong. Not only was Johnston lying, but what his supposed client wanted was against Iowa lottery policy. To claim a prize, you had to identify yourself. But Johnston kept talking like he hadn't heard her. Now she knew something was definitely wrong. She told Johnston she needed to confirm whether he could collect the ticket remotely and then hung up. Next, she called her boss, Iowa Lottery CEO, Terry Rich. He was a former television promoter and head of the Des Moines Zoo. Right now, he was on a cruise vacation. Terry, we've got a problem. She explained the situation. Even though Johnston did have the ticket, it didn't add up. We don't think we should pay. No, don't pay it. We need to get to the bottom of this. With that, Terry Rich and Mary Neubauer would begin an investigation. They didn't know it, but they were facing the biggest lottery scam in U.S. history. On this episode, insider threats, random number generators, dirty lawyers, Belizean corporations, hot dogs, Bigfoot, and the biggest lottery scam of all time. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of Eddie Tipton and the Hot Lotto Fraud Scam. Hey everybody. It's the holidays, and with Christmas right around the corner, there's just enough time to pick up a stocking stuffer for that IT person you love so much. And what do you know? Moda Mischief has got you covered. We've got comfy tees, warm hoodies, and some cool coffee cups in our merch store. Just click the link below to hook up that cybercrime-loving person in your life. And finally, as we close the year, I'd like to welcome all of our new listeners to the show. And there's been a ton of you this year. Now, if you love the show, we could really use your support on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll not only support the continued production of Modem Mischief, but you'll also gain access to bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers, as well as an ad-free version of the show. So check out patreon.com slash modem mischief or click the link in the show notes. If you support us on Apple Podcasts, you can become a member of Modem Mischief Elite for the same price and get the same stuff. That's it. 
Thanks, everybody, and happy holidays. And now, on with the show. You better hope your boy Bush wins. Otherwise, John Kerry's going to take your guns. Despite himself, Eddie Tipton chuckled. He and the accountant named Gene didn't see eye to eye on politics, but he liked the guy. Hey, Eddie, did you put your secret numbers in there? You know, you can set the numbers on any given day since, well, you wrote the software. Eddie paused. What Gene was suggesting was quite illegal, not to mention impossible. No, it wouldn't work that way because the games are always reviewed. But Gene's remark got Eddie thinking. Could he actually manipulate the lottery? This conversation took place in 2004. Eddie was a computer scientist for the Multi-State Lottery Association, or MUSCLE. MUSCLE is a nonprofit organization that oversees lotteries in 35 U.S. states, plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Its headquarters is also located in Iowa, and Iowa is one of the states that participates. It was formed in 1987 to allow states to pool their resources to offer bigger cash prizes. Muscle oversaw popular lottery games like Hot Lotto. Eddie knew Hot Lotto's inner workings. He helped set up the computers used to execute the drawings called draw computers. This included writing the software. To draw numbers for a game like Hot Lotto, the draw computers first used Geiger counters to detect trace levels of the radioactive isotope Americum-241 in the air. The random fluctuations in radioactivity gave the lottery a seed number. The computer then plugs this number into an algorithm called Mersenne Twister, which chooses the six winning numbers. Eddie knew it was impossible to hack a draw computer to somehow obtain these exact six numbers ahead of time, but maybe there was another way. Eddie was a programmer, but he was no hacker. After a few weeks after his conversation with Gene, he met a friend named Jason Marr at a Des Moines sushi restaurant. Eddie helped Marr get a job at Muscle. Marr was one of the most computer-savvy people Eddie knew. Eddie asked Marr what he knew about rootkits, or malicious software that can be downloaded onto a computer to perform certain operations, then delete itself. Unaware of why Eddie was asking, Marr pointed him in the right direction. Eddie researched rootkits and coding, and eventually, by 2005, he'd come up with his code. A normal hot lotto drawing gave a 1 in 10.9 million chance of winning. Eddie's code narrowed the pool of possible numbers to about 200. Meaning, if you bought 200 tickets in every possible combination, you'd be guaranteed to win. Eddie was careful not to make his code big enough to be noticeable. It only worked on draws after 8 p.m. and only on three specific dates, May 27th, November 23rd, and December 29th. Not coincidentally, all three dates fell near holidays when Eddie would be out of town. He called his code QVRNG.DLL, or Quantum Vision Random Number Generator. Eddie knew that rigging the lottery was illegal. He later claimed he did it just to see if he could. Whatever his motivations, Eddie uploaded his code into the system and shipped it off to Muscle's software contractor, Las Vegas-based Gaming Laboratories International. Nobody noticed Eddie's edit. It was installed on computers and shipped out to draw rooms in all 38 U.S. states and territories. Now, it was out there, waiting to be used. In 2005, U.S. lotteries generated $80 billion in revenue annually. $20 billion of that went back to the communities. This is done to make state-funded gambling more palatable to the churchy folk. Thus, 
lotteries are typically conducted with the tightest security. After all, why play if you knew the games were rigged? Most modern games are conducted on computers located inside draw rooms, or plexiglass enclosures monitored 24-7 by video cameras. Visitors aren't even allowed into the building without an escort. It's a system that relies entirely on trust, and Eddie violated that. But who was Eddie Tipton? Eddie Raymond Tipton was born in a Texas farm in 1964. While his siblings worked the fields, he stayed inside and tinkered with computers. Eddie's brother described him as a very large man who was lonesome and lonely. But he had many friends and was well-liked. On the other hand, a prosecutor would describe Eddie as someone who always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. After earning his bachelor's degree from the University of Houston, he got a job at Houston-based Systems Evolution, Inc. as the COO. He also became best friends with the company's CEO, Robert Rhodes. In 2003, he got the job at Muscle, and by 2005, he downloaded his malicious code. Like we said, Eddie's code would only work three days of the year. One of them, November 23rd, is close to American Thanksgiving. As a lottery employee, Eddie couldn't buy a ticket and claim it himself, but maybe, maybe someone else could do it for him. He has the perfect candidate, his own brother, Tommy Boyd Tipton. Tommy lived in Flatonia, Texas with his wife and five kids, but his marriage was far from a happy one. Heavy set like his brother, Tommy had two jobs. He was a horseshoer and a justice of the peace, but Tommy was also an avid Bigfoot hunter, and that's why Eddie needed him. Yup. You heard that right. Tommy grew up hearing tales of Bigfoot's menacing farms and livestock and dedicated his life to documenting and capturing them. His Bigfoot hunting habit took him across the U.S., and that's why Eddie needed him. Eddie knew Tommy was planning a Bigfoot hunting trip to Colorado around Thanksgiving of 2005, and Colorado belonged to the Multi-State Lottery Association. At some point in 2005, Eddie called his brother. Hey, Tommy. You should play the lottery while you're in Colorado. I can recommend some numbers. Eddie, you work for the lottery. It's fine. These things run on patterns. You know that. I just have a good idea of what's coming. I don't know. Is this illegal? Only if I buy the ticket myself. The jackpot is worth almost $5 million. You could put the kids through college. Do you want the numbers or not? Yeah. Eddie rattled off the numbers, 200 different combinations of the six hot lotto numbers. Tommy wrote them down on a yellow legal pad, but he was still uncertain. He needed the money, but didn't want to commit a crime. So he approached a lawyer who he knew through his horseshoeing business, Thad Wisnat. He asked Wisnat whether the whole situation was legal, and he showed the Texas attorney his list of numbers. Wisnat assured him it was legal. Unbeknownst to Tommy, Wisnat made a copy of Tommy's numbers. He could use these to buy his own tickets in the Colorado lottery and win a portion of the jackpot. With Wisnat's assurance, Tommy was satisfied. He brought his legal pad full of numbers on his trip to Colorado to hunt for Bigfoot. By night, Tommy and his comrades staked out the Colorado forest for the big guy. By day, Tommy bought tickets with Eddie's numbers. He traveled to every convenience store and gas station he could find only buying a few tickets at a time to avoid annoying the cashiers, who had to enter his numbers by hand. The night of the drawing, Tommy looked up the winning numbers, then sorted through his dozens of tickets. There it was, a match. He couldn't believe it. After taxes, Tommy's winning ticket was worth $568,000. 
which would have been even bigger if Thad Weisnat also hadn't bought a winning ticket. Still, it was a huge windfall, and that made Tommy nervous. He was still worried about his connection to Eddie. He also was on the outs with his wife and didn't want her to get any of his money. So, he gave the ticket to his friend and fellow Bigfoot enthusiast Alex Hicks in exchange for 10%. Tommy spent some of the money on a steakhouse. He gave Eddie two loans worth $175,000, which Eddie used to buy a 4,800-square-foot house in suburban Iowa, complete with a movie theater and gymnasium. But Tommy was still sitting on a bunch of cash, and this was a problem. Nervous about possessing so much cash and consecutive bills, Tommy approached an acquaintance named Tom Vargas, who owned 44 fireworks stands across Texas and was accustomed to dealing with cash in bulk. Tommy asked Vargas if he'd be willing to exchange $100,000 of Tommy's crisp consecutive bills with the same amount of Vargas's, paid by fireworks purchases. Vargas agreed, but he was suspicious that Tommy was trying to launder money, so he contacted the FBI. The FBI was, of course, also suspicious. The case fell to Special Agent Richard Renison. He allowed Tommy and Vargas to complete the cash swap, but made Vargas wear a wire. By the time Renison was ready to interview Tommy, he was surprised to learn that Tommy was in a Houston hospital. On another Bigfoot hunt, Tommy had fallen out of a 31-foot-tall tree and shattered both legs. At the hospital, Tommy explained that he'd won a lottery on a trip to Colorado and given the ticket to Alex Hicks because he didn't want his estranged wife to get any of it. He also made no mention of Eddie or his numbers. With nothing else to go on, Renison shelved the case. That could have been the end of it, but Eddie's code was like a money tree waiting to be picked. Eddie couldn't buy tickets, but Tommy came too close to trouble, so who else could Eddie rely on? About a year later, Robert Rhodes, Eddie's friend and former boss, visited him in Iowa. Eddie explained that he had a series of lottery numbers almost guaranteed to win a jackpot, but this time in Wisconsin. Rhodes was skeptical, but he was also going through a messy divorce and currently living with his mom. He needed the win. So he wrote Eddie's numbers on a stack of 3x5 note cards, drove to Wisconsin, and bought his tickets. Sure enough, Rhodes won, taking home $783,000. But Rhodes had his doubts too. By coming forward to claim the prize, Rhodes would be revealing his connection to Eddie. He asked the Wisconsin Lottery if he could claim the prize anonymously, just like attorney Philip Johnston would try years later. Wisconsin refused, but Rhodes successfully sued and collected his winnings. Eddie got a cool 40 k for his troubles. But Eddie wouldn't be able to capitalize on his code for three more years. Like we said, Eddie's code only worked on three specific days of the year, and only if those days were Wednesdays or Fridays. No dates met these criteria in 2008, 2009, or most of 2010, until the last possible day of the year, December 29, 2010, a Wednesday, when the hot lotto jackpot was worth $16.5 million. Eddie wasn't even sure his code still worked. He assumed the computers had already been replaced, but this was just too good to pass up. So on December 29, Eddie rented a car for a drive to Texas, where he would vacation with his family. But instead of driving south, he drove north to a quick trip convenience store on the other side of Des Moines. Wearing a baseball cap and hoodie, he entered the store and approached the lottery machine, where he bought $25 worth of tickets for tonight's drawing, plus two hot dogs. Then he headed south. 
only he didn't drive all the way to Texas. He made two more stops in Kansas, where he purchased the tickets for that night's 2x2 drawing. At the end of the long drive, Eddie settled into bed at his brother's house and checked the lottery drawings. He was stunned. He'd won twice in Kansas, two jackpots worth $22,000 each. But he'd also won the grand prize in Iowa, $16.5 million. Now the question was, how the hell was he going to collect it? In January of 2011, Iowa Lottery's CEO Terry Rich and VP of External Relations Mary Neubauer stood outside headquarters and addressed reporters. It's been nearly a month since we announced that we had a $16.5 million hot lotto winner, Rich began. The Iowa Lottery's been looking and asking everyone to please check their tickets. Behind them was a giant novelty Iowa Lotto check written out, Is it you? As CEO, I want to announce that the person who purchased or owns this ticket probably doesn't know they have it. Slides display the address for the Quick Trip convenience store where the ticket was purchased, as well as the winning numbers. Someone has the ticket. The Iowa Lottery wants to give away the money. We want someone to come in so we can show you the money. By this point, Rich, Neubauer, and the Iowa Lottery had every reason to think everything was above board. People often did forget to check their lottery tickets, unaware they had a winner. They had no idea what they were in for. The winner, Eddie Tipton, was fully aware he had the winning lottery ticket, plus the two other winning tickets from Kansas. And that was the problem. How does he cash them? Let's deal with the Kansas tickets first. On the way home to Texas, Eddie bought a pair of 2 by 2 tickets and won jackpots worth $22,000 each. He quickly needed to come up with two more people who could claim them. One was a Dungeons & Dragons friend named Christopher McClowski, whose sister Eddie once dated. McClowski was happy to split the prize with Eddie. The other was an Iowa medical worker named Amy Warwick. She and Eddie once went on a lackluster date, but they remained friends. At a recent lunch at Fuddruckers, Amy told Eddie she'd gotten engaged. Eddie gave her the second winning Kansas lottery ticket as an engagement gift, promising her it was legal to collect. That left the Iowa Hot Lotto ticket worth 16.5 mil. Collecting six figures was one thing, but Eddie knew a multi-million dollar prize would attract even more scrutiny. And he couldn't allow the Iowa lottery team to learn that a multi-state lottery association computer scientist was involved. He needed a savvy business person with legal contacts. And the only person who came to mind was their best friend, businessman, Robert Rhodes. Things were a bit strained between Eddie and Rhodes. After Eddie helped Rhodes win more than $700,000 in the Wisconsin lottery, Eddie gave Rhodes one more batch of numbers to play in the Wisconsin lotto. Rhodes once again traveled to Wisconsin to buy the tickets, but nerves got the better of him. He only played a handful of possible numbers, winning nothing. So when Eddie showed up at his door in 2011, Rhodes apologized. Forget about that, Eddie replied. Did you hear the Iowa lottery just held a drawing for $16.5 million? And Eddie pulled a paperback book out of his pocket, opened it, and took out an Iowa lottery ticket. 16.5 million bucks right here. Rhodes yanked Eddie inside and shut the door. Lottery employees can't buy lottery tickets. Relax, I bought them at a random convenience store. 
Nobody will know it's me. All you have to do is say you bought it. Rhodes was angry, but tempted. 16.5 mil would solve many problems, including a hefty fine the SEC recently levied against his company, Systems Evolution Inc. So, Rhodes took the ticket. As far as Eddie was concerned, that was that. Rhodes could cash it or not, and if he did, he could compensate Eddie, or not. Again, Eddie never expected to win anyway. He bought the tickets on a lark. He just wanted to return to his peaceful, secret-filled life. But Pandora's box was already open. After Christmas break, Eddie returned to work at Muscle and tried to act like nothing was wrong. But one day in early 2011, he learned that the Iowa Lottery had surveillance video of the Hot Lotto purchase, including audio. Eddie was shocked to learn that his Quick Trip convenience store was one of only four among 2,400 Iowa Lottery retailers with surveillance cameras wired for sound. In other words, Eddie had a 1 in 600 chance of picking the wrong convenience store, and he did just that. Maybe not 1 in 10.9 million odds, but very fitting that the guy who tried to rig the lottery would have such shit luck. If you're keeping score at home, Eddie had already successfully rigged three lotteries in Colorado, Wisconsin, and Kansas, and he potentially rigged a fourth in Iowa, and could potentially get caught for any of them. But Eddie also knew that he could once again capitalize on his code this coming November. Like we said, Eddie's lottery rigging code only worked on three days a year. Only if those days are Wednesdays or Fridays, and only if there's a drawing after 8 p.m. November 23, 2011 happened to be a Wednesday, with an evening drawing. But Eddie was running out of people he could trust, so he once again turned to his brother Tommy. Tommy lost his Justice of the Peace job thanks to his brush with the FBI in 2006, even if he was never convicted. Horseshoeing alone wasn't enough to pay the bills, so he was back in. The brothers tipped and agreed they shouldn't try to collect a winning ticket in a state where they'd already done so. They needed a fresh one, so they picked Oklahoma. Tommy knew someone there, a friend who wanted to borrow his Bigfoot equipment. Only, Tommy didn't think his friends would go along with their scheme, so he needed another friend to buy the tickets. He had someone in mind, yet another Bigfoot hunter named Billy Kahn. Billy worked on offshore oil platforms for 28 years before an injury forced him to go on disability. He also had a bullet lodged in his head after being victim of a drive-by shooting in his youth. On one Bigfoot hunt, Billy found a 42-inch dreadlock in the forest. He took it to several universities for DNA analysis before one finally agreed to examine it and determined it belonged to an unknown primate. And yes, primates includes human beings. Tommy quickly got wind of the discovery, called Billy, and the two became friends. Tommy called Billy and made his proposition. He had winning lottery numbers in Oklahoma, but didn't want to claim them himself because his estranged wife could claim it. So, Tommy and Billy would drive to Oklahoma under the pretense of loaning Tommy's Bigfoot hunting gear, then buy lottery tickets with numbers Tommy provided, and Tommy never mentioned he got them from Eddie. Billy was interested, but feared that winning a large cash prize would disqualify him for disability benefits. But Billy had a nephew, Kyle, who he could rely on. So, Tommy and Billy drove to Oklahoma, bought their tickets, and won a jackpot worth about $800,000 after taxes. Tommy took 650k, Eddie took 75k, and Billy and Kyle Kahn took 35k each. The Kahns weren't great at managing money. They lost a bundle in Facebook stock. 
and then another in silver and gold. Besides a couple of hunting cabins, eventually, it was gone. But what about the bigger score? That 16.5 million hot lotto ticket from Iowa? When we last left that ticket in early 2011, Eddie gave it to his best friend and former boss, Robert Rhodes. Rhodes's first move was to bring it to his attorney, Robert Sonfield, and ask for advice. Sonfield wasn't thrilled. Are you kidding me? We already barely avoided trouble with the Wisconsin lottery. Now you're pulling this shit again? And with a ticket your best friend and lottery employee bought himself? Can't we just claim it anonymously? Iowa state law doesn't allow for that. So we'll just sue like we did in Wisconsin. You can't guarantee outcome of a trial, and if we did that, we'd have to identify ourselves. Bob, this ticket is worth $16.5 million. The attorney sighed and leaned back in his chair. If I agreed, obviously you can't claim the ticket, and neither can I. We'll need to involve more people, and we'll need their cuts too. There's enough to go around. With that, Sonfield plucked a name from his contacts, a New York City attorney he worked for for 30 years named Crawford Shaw. Shaw was intrigued about the possibility of earning a hefty payoff for the simple act of collecting a lottery ticket. But like Sonfield, he was concerned about the potential blowback. Sonfield and Shaw needed to insulate themselves. So, the attorneys agreed on the age-old lawyery techniques of A, involving more lawyers, and B, moving things overseas, which would potentially impede investigations. They came up with a plan. Shaw would hire a local Iowa law firm named Davis Brown to collect the ticket. It would do so on behalf of an offshore trust they would set up in Belize called Hexham Investments. They still needed someone to set up this trust. Sonfield knew another lawyer who was based in the Caribbean and accustomed to laundering ill-begotten money, Philip Johnston, the drug dealer lawyer we met at the beginning of the episode. Johnston was agreeable, but they had to move fast. The ticket expired one year after the drawing. Johnston and Shaw filed the paperwork to create Hexham Investments, and by early November of 2011, about six weeks before the deadline, Johnston contacted Iowa Lottery VP Mary Neubauer and CEO Terry Rich. Like we saw, Johnston called the Iowa Lottery and started with a bluff. He claimed he bought the winning ticket himself on a business trip to Des Moines. By now, Neubauer and Shaw had been waiting almost a year to give away this jackpot giving press conferences every couple of months to beg the winner to come forward. They poured over surveillance camera footage from the Quick Trip store in Des Moines. He looked nothing like the man in this video, and they smelled bullshit. When Neubauer confronted Johnston with the truth, he changed his story. He admitted he'd fibbed, that really he represented a client who wished to remain anonymous. Obviously, this was against Iowa state law. Neubauer and Rich already caught Johnston in one lie which constituted fraud. They'd be damned if they'd hand out a prize under suspicious circumstances. The Iowa Lottery executives had a choice. They could refuse to pay the jackpot and sweep the incident under the rug, or they could try to catch and punish the fraudsters. They passed the case on to Iowa Deputy Attorney General Thomas H. Miller, who was the most experienced prosecutor in the state, but also retiring. Meanwhile, Johnston continued to try to negotiate with the Iowa Lottery to claim the ticket anonymously. But Johnston and the company ran out of time. They had to turn in the ticket before the December 29th deadline. That job fell to two lawyers for the Des Moines law firm, Davis Brown, which Johnston and Shaw hired for this purpose. With just under two hours before the deadline, the lawyers appeared at the Iowa Lottery headquarters with the winning ticket. 
CEO Terry Rich held a press conference to mark the event. Normally, the Iowa Lottery would pay the prize at this point, but this is an unusual circumstance, Rich told reporters, not to mention the winner hoped to remain anonymous. We're still learning details as part of our security protocols and procedures, he continued, not mentioning that a criminal investigation was already underway. Of course, security and integrity are what the Iowa Lottery is all about. As 2011 turned into 2012, the Iowa Lottery still refused to pay Johnston or anyone else this $16.5 million prize. Negotiations dragged on. Crawford Shaw became involved. At one point, Johnston and Shaw offered to donate the entire prize to charity so long as the client could remain anonymous. Iowa refused. And so, in early 2012, Shaw made the unilateral decision to withdraw the winning Hot Lotto ticket, no doubt pissing off his co-conspirators. But it was too late. The Iowa Lottery and the Deputy Attorney General were determined to get to the bottom of this. It was only a matter of time before everyone's crimes came to light. Happy Birthday Iowa Assistant Attorney General and Prosecutor Rob Sand was sitting at his desk when his boss, Deputy Attorney General Thomas H. Miller, dropped a thick file on it with a thud. It wasn't his birthday, it was actually early 2014, and Deputy Miller was retiring in August, so he was unloading all his unfinished cases onto his staff. Sand was barely out of law school, and so religious and morally upstanding he was nicknamed Baby Jesus. He specialized in white-collar crime and fraud, people taking advantage of other people's trust and love. He saw these as crimes against gratitude. Sand leafed through the file. It was for the open Iowa lottery fraud case. Deputy Miller had done a lot of investigative work on it over the last two-plus years. To make a long story short, Miller received New York attorney Crawford Shaw in Iowa, but Shaw refused to give up the name of who hired him. So he threatened fraud charges. That did the trick. Miller then contacted Canadian authorities for help with Philip Johnston. After many months went by, Miller finally got his two lawyers to divulge who hired them, Houston attorney Rob Sonfield and his client Robert Rhodes. And that was as far as Miller got. They couldn't prove or disprove that Rhodes was the man in the surveillance video buying the hot lotto ticket. He knew Rhodes had won the lottery once before in Wisconsin, but couldn't prove this was suspicious. With retirement looming, Miller left the case there. Sand was facing a three-year statute of limitations, so he had to move fast. They still hadn't identified the man in the surveillance video. So, Sand's first move was to release the video to the public, which he did in October of 2014. By now, the Iowa Lottery was admitting that the case was a criminal investigation. And now, the entire country could see the heavy-set man in the hoodie and ball cap buying the hot lotto tickets and two hot dogs. Many people recognized him for who he was. Multi-State Lottery Association computer scientist, Eddie Tipton. See, Eddie's job required him to travel, so Muscle employees around the country knew his face and recognized his voice. Like Muscle employee from the Maine Lottery and two more from the Iowa Lottery, including a draw room manager. Another person who recognized him was Jason Marr, Eddie's friend who taught him about root kits. Marr didn't want to believe his friend rigged the lottery, but when he compared the man's voice with the recording of Eddie's made on his home security system on a recent visit, it was a match. Tips poured into the Iowa lottery, all identifying Eddie as the man in the video. 
for good measure, Iowa Lottery CEO Terry Rich, who was a board member at Muscle and acquainted with Eddie, approached him at Muscle headquarters and casually asked if he knew of a Houston man named Robert Rhodes. Astoundingly, Eddie said Rhodes was his best friend. An excited Rich relayed this to the Iowa Lottery's VP of Security, Steve Bogle. Bogle, an ex-cop, told his boss to stay the hell out of the investigation. The Iowa Lottery passed the tips on to Rob Sand, who interviewed Eddie a few weeks later. Eddie claimed he had an alibi, that he was in Texas when the winning hot lotto ticket was purchased. However, when Sand subpoenaed his phone and bank records, he was proven to be in Des Moines. This made Eddie Sand's top suspect. Yet the case wasn't quite the slam dunk it seemed. All Sand's evidence was circumstantial. They had no forensic evidence that Eddie created a malicious code to manipulate the hot lotto numbers. By the time a criminal investigation began, the Iowa draw computer had been replaced with a new one with updated code. But Sand was facing a three-year statute of limitations on the crime. He'd run out of time, so in January of 2015, he had Eddie arrested. Eddie went peacefully. Two months later, they arrested Rhodes as well. For his part, Eddie was also vehemently denying he'd done anything wrong. He knew the state lacked forensic evidence, and he hoped he could ride it out. He was also relieved that investigators only seemed to know about his Iowa lottery scams, not the other ones. In July of 2015, facing trial, Eddie sold his 4,800-square-foot house to pay for his legal expenses. At his trial, his lawyer leaned into the false accusation defense. His lawyer even called on Eddie's brother Tommy as a character witness, unaware of Tommy's role in the lottery scams. Tommy denied the man in the convenience store surveillance video buying lottery tickets and hot dogs was his brother, as Eddie wasn't a hot dog guy. Despite the lack of hard evidence, the jury needed just six hours to decide Eddie was guilty on two counts of fraud. But Eddie and his lawyer still had another card to play, an appeal. The following July in 2016, the Iowa Court of Appeals ruled in Eddie's favor, overturning the two fraud charges on the ground that the state had taken too long to file them. The case was sent back to district court for a retrial. But this time, Sand caught a lucky break in the form of a phone call from Texas FBI agent Richard Rennison. The strange Iowa lottery case and its hot dogs caught Rennison's attention. He remembered investigating Eddie's brother Tommy years earlier for money laundering suspicious lottery prize money, just after he broke his legs hunting Bigfoot. Sand realized there had to be more cases out there. Sand's office obtained a list of every past muscle lottery winner going back to Renison's case in 2005, then cross-referenced their phone numbers with those found in Eddie's call history. He found Tommy Tipton's 2005 Colorado win, which he collected via Alex Hicks. He found Robert Rhodes's 2007 Wisconsin win. And he found Amy Warwick's and Chris McClowski's Kansas wins from 2010. And finally, he found Bobby and Kyle Kahn's Oklahoma win in 2011. Ironically, Kansas was one of the few states that allowed lottery prizes to be claimed anonymously. Warwick and McClowski just identified themselves voluntarily. If they'd known the law, they probably would never have been caught. And if Eddie and his accomplices limited their scams to states like Kansas, they wouldn't either. Sand reached out to the lottery associations in these states, hoping for any assistance particularly anything resembling forensic evidence that would implicate Eddie. Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma had nothing. They'd replace their draw computers just like Iowa had. So would Wisconsin. But an employee in the Wisconsin lottery found an old computer in a storage room that hadn't been wiped. 
Within hours, Sands' forensic investigators were able to trace the malicious rootkit back to Eddie. This was the smoking gun Sand needed. And now, Eddie couldn't deny what he'd done. On top of that, Robert Rhodes took a plea deal to testify against Eddie. He knew that it would be futile to go to trial again. Even worse, his brother Tommy was facing legal jeopardy too. So in early 2017, Eddie agreed to plead guilty to one charge in Iowa for ongoing criminal conduct and two more in Wisconsin for theft by fraud and computer crime. Tommy couldn't escape a charge either. He agreed to plead guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit theft in Wisconsin and Iowa. Mercifully, Eddie's other friends escaped punishment. But now, he and his brother were at the court's mercy. In June 2017, Eddie appeared in court, both to enter his guilty plea and to explain himself. He told his story to the judge, the Honorable Brad McCall. For the first time, Eddie admitted what he did. He claimed he did it just out of curiosity. He tried to paint himself as a Robin Hood-like figure. He was just exploiting a loophole to help his friends and family. Brother Tommy with college tuition for his daughters. Amy Warwick with an engagement gift to ease her money troubles. Robert Rhodes to save his company from bankruptcy. But in the end, Eddie expressed remorse. I certainly regret what happened. It's difficult even saying that with all the people I know behind me that I hurt, and I regret it. I'm sorry. The judge gave his response. Mr. Tipton, it's clear that you are intelligent, but it is indeed unfortunate that you did not use that intelligence to prosper by legal means. I encourage you to use your time in prison to think about what you've done. Judge McCall sentenced Eddie to a maximum of 25 years. Eddie was 54 years old. However, while Robert Sand appreciated the victory, he knew Eddie would most likely get out much sooner. White-collar criminals usually did. He predicted seven years. Eddie got out in five. Robert Rhodes received six months home confinement and had to pay $409,000 in restitution to the Wisconsin Lottery. Thanks to Eddie's plea, Tommy Tipton received just 75 days in jail. But the brothers Tipton were also ordered to pay $2.2 million in restitution to Colorado, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Oklahoma lotteries. In the end, that's about all Eddie Tipton and his co-conspirators were proven to have taken, somewhere between two and three million dollars, split between many other conspirators, and they had to give it all back. So in the end, the biggest lottery scam in the United States profited no one. But that was cold comfort for the Iowa Lottery, if not the multi-state lottery association itself. The Iowa Lottery conducted an expensive audit of their procedures. Obviously, they removed all the software Eddie Tipton was involved with creating, but there was only so much the Iowa Lottery could do. You can make a computer network as secure as the Iowa Lottery does, but someone still has to program it. As Mary Neubauer says, as long as human beings are involved in anything, that practice or procedure will never be perfect. You just need to have the best safeguards and the best systems in place so that if something does start to go wrong, you can recognize that quickly, catch it, and then put even better safeguards in place as you go ahead. So the next time you consider buying yourself a lottery ticket, remember, the game might not be rigged, but it will never be safe as long as human beings are involved. 
I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode, and maybe leave us a review there. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash modemmischief or click the link in the show notes. You can also support us through a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode is written and researched by Jim Rowley. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernard, a.k.a. The Greg Gadsby. The theme song, You Are Digital, is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.